So as I said at the start of our service, we are wrapping up the uh, series that we've been calling Getting to Know God, in which we've been looking at this very interesting truth that Christians proclaim that we worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We kicked it off on Pentecost, looking at the Holy Spirit as the God who is always with us. Last weekend, we talked about how Jesus is God revealed to us in love. And uh, this weekend, we're going to be talking about God the Father. What does it mean that God is Father? What does it mean that He is the maker of heaven and earth? And so I think it's only right that uh, before we take a look at some scripture together, that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that He has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that uh, on this beautiful day, we can be gathered together in your creation to worship you that we might come to know you, to know the love that you have for us, and to know what it means to live in light of that love. And so, Lord, we do indeed ask that you would be with us as we open your word, that you would give us open hearts and minds to understand the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I remember it was a, a couple of years ago, I came across a picture of the statue entitled The Self-Made Man that was uh, crafted and sculpted by uh, a sculptor named Bobby Carlyle. Now, if you've never seen this statue before, it is a 10-foot-tall bronze statue, which depicts a man carving himself out of rock. Uh, he uh, has ha a hand upraised with a, a heavy hammer, and in his left hand he has a chisel. And he looks down with fierce determination and competence as he chisels his own torso free from a block of granite. And uh, Bobby Carlyle, talking about why she made this, uh, this particular sculpture, said the following. She said, the piece represents man carving his future. I left deliberate nicks and abrasions in the finished work. Man needs to see signs of his own effort and toil. And as I thought about that image and as I considered what that statue depicts, what I realized is that, quite honestly, this statue is the idol of our time. I couldn't think of anything more American than an image of a man carving himself out of stone. Because this is what we tell ourselves in our culture today. That we are self-made people. That we are people who are the masters of our own destinies, the captains of our own souls. That we have the freedom to not only pursue any path that we choose, but the ability to carry it out. I find it interesting that actually the original statue was then purchased by the United States ambassador to Saudi Arabia and taken with him to the consulate as a sign of what it is we represent as a people. This is indeed how we think about what it means to live life in our world today. And we tell ourselves that this is actually a sign of the great freedoms that we have. We can forge our own path. We can craft our own destiny by our own might and intelligence and willpower, we can solve the unsolvable, attain the unattainable, and that truly this is a country of great opportunity for everyone. 
Now, while it is certainly true that we live in a place with incredible freedoms, where people have the ability to elect their leaders, pursue careers and education, I have to wonder if the message of the self-made man is really one that is worth pursuing. Because you see, on the one hand, while we tell ourselves that we have indeed made ourselves, that we are indeed in charge of our own destiny, when we really stop and think about it, this image, while it caters to our pride, ultimately crushes our soul. Because if it's true that our destiny is something that only we can attain, if it's true that it is up to us to forge our own paths and to find our own meaning, the reality is that while that may sound good on paper or even look impressive on a statue, it's ultimately crushing to ourselves and enslaving to others. Because what it means is that we need to grasp and hammer into shape anything that we believe is going to show us where our ultimate meaning is found. And likewise, we must subdue anything that gets in the way of our pursuit of it. While again, this image, I think, flatters our pride, it crushes our soul, it proclaims that everyone is free, while at the same time, enslaving anyone around us who gets in the way of our pursuit of our ideal dream, of the pursuit of making ourselves self-made people. We see it in our careers, in the ways in which we climb over those to get to the top, in which we view not just our competitors as our competitors, but our colleagues and our coworkers. That as we pursue our own dreams, we often do so at the expense of others, their needs, their, their hurts and their heartaches and their pains. One of the things that I find so interesting is that often the most generous, the most loving, the most selfless people that we find in our society are the people who realize that they're not self-made people at all. That what they have is only theirs because it was given to them, passed on to them, because someone opened the door for them. Someone gave them an opportunity that allowed them to pursue what they felt called to pursue. And as a result, they hold what they have lightly and gently, with open hands for the sake of others. And yet it's the people who most cling to the narrative of the self-made person that often seem to be the least generous, least open-handed individuals in our world today. Because the reality is, is that none of us are self-made people. I mean, the statue itself proclaims how ludicrous that narrative is. Think about it. Not a single person sitting here decided to be born. Not a single one of us got to choose our families. Not a single one of us got to choose our socioeconomic status, our racial or our cultural background, the language we would grow up hearing in our homes, the country where we currently live. Not a single one of us determined our aptitudes and our abilities. And yes, well, you could say over time through things like education, we've learned a couple of tricks and we've been able to navigate the system better. The reality is, is at the end of the day, every single one of us only has what we have because it was given to us as a gift.
the air that we breathe, the world that we inhabit, all of these things are things that we have received from the one who made us. And oftentimes it's when we forget that, that we then fall into this self-destructive and other destructive pattern of telling ourselves the lie that everything we have is ultimately ours, forged by our own will and power, might and intelligence. Which is why Martin Luther, in writing his large catechism and reflecting on what it is Christians confess, that we believe, that God, that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, said the following. He says that this is a truth that almost everybody at some point forgets. This is the way the wretched, perverse world acts, drowned in its blindness, misusing all the blessings and gifts of God solely for its own pride, greed, pleasure, and enjoyment, and never once turning to God to thank him or acknowledge him as Lord and Creator. And the evidence of this grasping on our part is seen all around us. You know, more and more, if you talk to sociologists and they, you ask them about the problems that our world faces today, more and more they'll tell you it's not issues like uh, overpopulation or the number of human beings on the planet. Rather, it's about the total misallocation and disproportionate distribution of wealth and resources, right down to the basics of food and water. In fact, some of our own Trinity members this fall are going to be running the Chicago Marathon for Team World Vision. The reason why is because there are countless people around the world who don't have access to clean drinking water. That 1,500 children under the age of five die a day because they lack fresh water and are dying because of the diseases that polluted drinking water often passes on to the most vulnerable. And yet, all it takes is $50 for one person to have clean drinking water for the rest of their life. Why is it that we live in a world that has such problems? It's not because there's too many of us. It's because too few of us have what so many need. And so the question is, how is it that us proclaiming that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, speaks into the challenges that we face today? Well, the answer comes when we take a closer look at what it is Scripture proclaims. Because there are two things that I think we need to realize when we proclaim this truth, that God is indeed our Father and that He is the Maker. The first is this. It means that He alone is the one who has forged everything that we have. The very stars in the heavens were placed there and named by Him. Our very solar system, so well attuned, spinning so perfectly on its axes, is only there because of his will and decree. The only reason that we have air to breathe, water to drink, resources to enjoy, is because he himself provides them. Martin Luther says this in his catechism, he says, we learn from this article that none of us has life or anything else that has been mentioned here or can be mentioned from ourselves, nor can we by ourselves preserve any of them, however small and unimportant. This is what we proclaimed when we read Psalm 147 together this morning. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise Him. Why? 
because he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. He sustains the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. He covers the skies with clouds and supplies the earth with rain. He makes grass grow on the hills and provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. What we see is that the only basis for any of us having anything is only because he has provided everything. He alone is the only true maker of what we see. And what's so beautiful is that we also learn that as we proclaim that he is the maker of heaven and earth, he is also our father who loves us. Again, look at what Psalm 147 says. It says, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior, but the Lord delights in those who fear him and who put their hope in his unfailing love. You see, the reason he makes everything is because of his love. He didn't need our world. He doesn't need us. He is perfectly happy and content before time began. And yet what we proclaim is that he created all that we see simply out of joy and love. Simply out of his desire to provide for us, his people, to care for us, and to carry us through all of life's seasons. What I love is something that uh, Tim and Kathy Keller wrote in their meditation on this very psalm. They said, This unimaginably immense God is given pleasure, real joy, and delight when human beings put their life's hope in his gracious love. He made all of these things in order to provide for us. He delights in us. He loves caring for us. In the same way, we as parents delight in caring for our children, in clothing them, in feeding them, in playing with them, in making sure that they have a roof over their heads. In the same way, God created the heavenly firmament so that we might know of his love and provision. And what's so beautiful about this is that it sets us free from fear and anxiety. It sets us free from the need to grasp and allows us to truly become the kind of people that he's called us to be. When we understand this truth, it opens our hearts in gratitude and our hands in generosity. Listen to what Jesus himself had to say about the Father's loving provision. He first and foremost tells us not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. But then he goes on and says the following, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable than they? He says, look at the grass of the field and the flowers that grow. Not even King Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you? 
God's promise and his commitment is that he will provide for us in our time of need. That even when things are difficult, that even when it seems like times are scarce, he never lets us go. He provides for what we need and he carries us through it. And yet one of the things that I find so fascinating when people often ask, so how is it that God provides? How is it that he gets his blessings to us? The Psalms actually give us the answer. Stop and listen to what else it says in Psalm 147. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest wheat. How does he do that? Through you, through his people. How did God build Jerusalem? By giving gifts to his people that they might build up their city, that they might construct its walls and stand to defend them. How is it that he provides for the needy? through the generosity of the hands of those who are called by his name? How does he strengthen our, ba our bars or provide wheat for our tables through the farmers who work and labor in the fields, cultivating all the resources that God has provided? The way in which our Father provides for us is through the hands of those who understand that everything that they've been given is a gift that they might give it away to others. That's why Jesus says at the end of his comments on the Father's provision to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given unto you. When we realize that everything that we have is provided for us by our loving Father, it enables us to care not so much about what will happen tomorrow, but about how we can be about his work today. And lest we ever doubt his love, lest we ever doubt his provision, we need only to be reminded of just what kind of a father he is. That he is the father who looking down on our broken world and all of its need and sent his only begotten son to rescue it. That he is the God who became incarnate in our midst, submitting to his father's will and gladly laid down his life on a cross saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That he is the God who's raised from the dead to eternal life and who then sends the Holy Spirit to dwell with us in our hearts always. Our God is a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one who uses his might to serve, who leaves his throne in order to save, and who sets up his dwelling place not in buildings made by a brick and stone, but within our hearts so that we know wherever we go, our God is indeed with us. That's what it means to believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's to confess that God made us, that God saves us, and that he daily walks with us. And his greatest desire is to truly in, and indeed be with us in all of life's seasons, caring for us, sustaining us, and leading us as we go out to bless a world that is so desperately in need. To introduce others who don't yet know him to their father who made them, to the son who saves them, 
and to the Holy Spirit who will dwell with them now and forever. It's in the name of our God that we say thanks be to him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.